sweet reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ is ours forevermore and that he will never leave us or forsake us. Praise the Lord for that reality. Uh, just a brief uh, announcement to add to, to Warner's earlier. Uh, Miss Audrey's funeral, you, you guys, many of you all probably saw the email, uh, will be one week from tomorrow. So Monday, uh, August the 8th. And so uh, if you didn't know Miss Audrey or if you did, I just wanted everyone to come out if you're able to for maybe an hour, hour and a half on next Monday, August 8th. Uh, one, to worship the Lord. What we've been doing here is what we'll be doing there. All right. We're going to worship Jesus Christ because he's still king and is ours even through death. And we want to comfort the family. So if you're able to come out for that, please uh, uh, make plans to do so. And uh, the family needs two pallbearers. And so I could send an email out this afternoon, but if there's two brothers who'd be willing to serve as pallbearers, can you raise your hand? If you know you can be able to just one, can I get one more? All right, so we got one. So someone can serve as a pallbearer for about an hour, Monday, August 8th. Let me know, right? So, uh, and I'll be sending an email out to, to haggle you all, you, go, you all on that. This morning, however, we, we attend to God's word. So Warner just prayed for God's word. We will attend to God's word. And over the past few weeks, we've been walking through a few of the Psalms. The Psalms are Israel's hymn book, the nation of Israel. The, the, the Lord Almighty gave his people a, a book by which they should pray and sing. Many different authors through many different years, but all singing songs of praise in the midst of pain to God. Something of what we just sang, that even though tears are mine, so is Christ. The Lord is mine. But if you know anything about songs or albums, let's think of the, the Psalms as one big album. And you think about an album, what makes an album good? All right. Uh, what truly makes an album good? And, and many of you guys will, will miss this if, you, if you're younger than a certain age. We used to have to listen to, to, to CDs, a little circular disc, right? And on that CD, on a good CD, you might have 12, 15, 16 songs, right? Generally, though, what makes a great album, we didn't have Spotify. You couldn't just kind of, you know, have your favorite little list that's got all the bangers on it, right? A good CD would have songs wherein you wouldn't have to skip any songs. It's a very rare thing to find an album where you can't skip any. I mean, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, right? that's one. It's only like a handful of them, right? You don't have to skip any songs. Well, if you read through the Psalms... There's a few songs you want to skip. Maybe you read this passage this week. You're like, let's skip that one. Uh, some of that rose up in my own heart. But, but praise God that as, as Joseph prayed for us earlier, we're in a church where we value the word of God. Every single piece of the word of God. The, the, the hard stuff and the sweet stuff. The, the Psalm 23s and the Psalm 109s. Uh, we want to be a people who don't believe that we know best, that the Lord has given us a word for every single season. And so back when I picked some songs, so, uh, psalms in Psalm, in, in book five of the Psalter, I didn't read every single psalm in, 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 in advance. I just knew that we needed to work through some psalms in, in book five. But trusting that the Lord's word is good for every single occasion, we will look to his word this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 109. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find it on page 508. I'm going to read the entire uh, chapter, and just leave your Bible open. 
I want you to stare at your Bible as I read and as I preach uh, following. Psalm 109. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking evil against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did, did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy, and the brokenhearted to, to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, so may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O oh God, my Lord, Deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one. Save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Now, if you read this passage this past week, or if you just followed along closely as I read, perhaps there are a number of questions you might have. Maybe even a number of disturbing questions. One, why is this even in the Bible? And this kind of harsh, condemnatory language, praying that 
People be cursed, and even that their children be cursed and barren. Two, what kind of God would allow such language? In his supposed holy book, what does this say about the nature and the character of God? Three, why does this man, David, have so many enemies? I mean, we saw him talking about being in danger from people last week. And again, he talks about the many enemies he has here in this chapter. Four, what are we supposed to do with this all? How are we supposed to apply it? Should we pray like this? Now, I won't necessarily respond to each question one by one. My hope is that, is that by the time of the end of this sermon, some of those questions, maybe all of those questions might be answered to you. That we'd have a, a better grasp of this text and, and why it's in the Bible and more, that we'd all have a better grasp of God and a love for the God who put this text in the Bible for our good, for our encouragement, for our correction, for our rebuke, for our training in righteousness. Much of this psalm contain, contains language that has had it traditionally labeled as one of the imprecatory psalms. To imprecate, you get that word imprecatory from, to, to imprecate means to, to invoke a curse. But I think that can be slightly misleading. Because in this psalm and others like it, what you see is not a curse being placed on people directly by David to their face, based on his own emotions or his own feelings, what we see is a prayer directed to God to act against his enemies based on what he's promised. So, so here's what I think the main idea this psalm is teaching us. The main idea of Psalm 109. God's people should turn God's enemies over to God for, for their judgment and for our deliverance. God's people should turn God's enemies over to God for their judgment and for our deliverance. And the different parts of that main idea will serve as the three points to the sermon. So, so point number one, God's people. We'll see that in verses one through five. And number two, turn God's enemies over to God for judgment. We'll see that in verses 6 to, uh, through 20. And number three, turn to God for our deliverance. We'll see that in verses 21 through 31. So point number one, God's people. Point number two, turn God's enemies over to God for judgment. And point number three, turn to God for deliverance. Point number one, God's people. Now, perhaps you're confused that I've used a plural term, people, to describe a singular person. No, I'm not subscribing to the New English that they tell us we have to subscribe to. What we read in the first five verses seems to be an experience unique to David. I mean, the inscription up top of this psalm says it's, it's, it's of David, right? It's a, a psalm or a song that he wrote. 
And he talks about things happening seemingly, singularly to him. Verse 1, wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking evil against me. Verse 3, they encircle me, they attack me. But while David's experience is personally felt, David represents not just himself, but a people, God's people. That's how God has designed it. The God of the universe who made the world and everything in it chose to establish his rule over the universe through people he raised up and entered into a covenant relationship with. So God created Adam and entered into a covenant with him. Adam was supposed to extend God's rule over God's creation to image God's authority and care. But Adam sinned and failed to rightly reflect God. So God raised up Noah and entered into a covenant with him. Noah was supposed to serve as a kind of new Adam over a new creation after the flood. But Noah sinned and failed to rightly reflect God. God raised up Abraham and called him out of his own country to a place that he would show him. And he established a covenant with Abraham and his seed after him to represent God. But Abraham failed to live holy to God and to rightly reflect him. So so God then extended his focus to an entire people, the nation of Israel and those who were the descendants of Abraham. They would be an entire kingdom of priests. Their lives were to be lived in worship of God. They would represent God on earth and show the watching world what it was like to live rightly in a relationship with their creator. But Israel sinned and failed to rightly reflect God. So God took that broad focus from the nation of Israel and narrowed it down again to a singular person who would represent all God's people, the king whom he'd appoint or anoint. That king was the author of this psalm, David. God chose him to rule on earth over his people. His rule supposed to be a reflection of God's good divine rule. But great as he was, David sinned and failed to rightly reflect God. Yet David represented not just the people of Israel and their relationship with God. David's kingship pointed beyond his own life to another king who would reign on earth. His rule is supposed to be a reflection of God's good divine rule. That king was the king of heaven, the king who come to earth, Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel chapter 7 talks about God making a covenant with David that one of his offspring would rule forever. His reign unaffected by sin and demise, unlike Adam and Noah and David. Jesus lived in perfect covenant relationship with God, and he perfectly reflected God's good divine rule. And with his perfect life and sacrificial death and resurrection of the dead, Jesus served as our representative, uniting all those who put their faith in him to be part of God's people. Now, why that kind of quick biblical theology connecting God's rule 
through a person who represents others? Well, because I think it helps us understand David's experience here. And it is quite an experience. People are treating him cruelly. They are speaking evil against him. Uh, Look again at at verse 2. Wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against him. They tell lies. They spew words of hatred and insult. They put together a smear campaign to take him down. They try to discredit him. They revile him and mock him. They make false allegations against him. And notice how David labels it all at the the end of verse 3. As attacks. Now, many of us grew up hearing the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Well, here's mighty David who's been in brawls with bears and lions and battles with kings and giants, categorizing these hate-filled, lying words from others as assaults, sharper than sword thrusts, more forceful than club swipes. Friends, words hurt. You know that experientially, which should make us more judicial more gentle with our words, knowing the pain that they can inflict. And what makes these words here so painful is that they come for no reason and from people whom you least expected. I mean, look at the end of verse 3. David says, they attack me without cause. And then verse 5, the people David has loved and done good to return that love with hatred. Reward that good with evil. Why is David so hated? Why are people against him? Is he self-deceived about how supposedly innocent he is? If you've ever counseled a couple or mediated a disagreement, you know how one-sided each party can describe a situation. They've done nothing wrong to contribute to the problem to bring trouble upon themselves. Maybe that's how David is here, presenting a better picture of his actions than is actually the case. But there's nothing in the text causing us to doubt his description. And that's not to say that David was always perfect and blameless in every instance. We know that's not true, right? We we need to be constrained in how we read text. And when you read in in the Psalms or in other books that someone is blameless, it's not saying they've never sinned. It's saying in a specific instance, in a specific way. In in this instance, David has been blameless. He's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong to to warrant this response from people. So why then so much hatred, so much animosity from others if he's done nothing wrong but only good? What it ties into who we said David is, the king. Not just a king of a nation with other rival nations vying for the throne, but the king whom God anointed to be over his people and to represent him. And as God's anointed king, all nations, all peoples are against him because all people are against God in their rebellion, vying for his throne, trying to be their own kings. I mean, consider Psalm chapter 2 at the beginning of the Psalter. 
where we read that the nations rage and the people's plots. The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And who's the anointed? Who's the king? Most immediately, it's David. The very next psalm after Psalm 2, Psalm 3, then describes King David facing plots and oppositions that Psalm 2 predicted, running for his life from his own son. The one he loved returned his love for hatred. David's enemies came upon him because of his status as God's anointed king. They treated him badly, not because he'd done anything to earn their wrath, but because men love darkness rather than light, love sin rather than God, and unjustifiably lash out against God and anyone who represents him, anyone who intends to live under him. I mean, Cain killed godly Abel for no reason. Korah and Dathan and Abiram conspired against godly Moses for no reason. And the many enemies who sprouted up over David's lifetime rose up against him for no specific reason other than they hated God and his anointed. It's the plight of God's people. It's what we ultimately see fulfilled in the life of the one who fulfills David's ministry as the anointed one of God. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Messiah, had many enemies. They spoke evil and deceit against him. They said that he belonged to the devil. He cast out demons by the prince of demons. They had lying tongues toward him. They arrested him on false pretenses and condemned him to death on false accusations. They sought to have him crucified for no reason, without cause. I mean, Pilate kept on saying, I find no guilt in this man. And even on the cross, they continued to open their mouths and mock and revile him. The eternal son of God who out of love came to earth to save sinners, his love was rewarded with hatred. His intended purpose to do eternal good was nonetheless returned with unspeakable evil. Why? Because he was God's anointed. And beloved, anyone connected with him through faith will experience similar vitriol, attacks, slander, ridicule, mockery, lying, simply because of our allegiance with him. It is part of being a follower of Christ, part of being a part of God's people. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it hated me before. We will bear the reproaches of our Savior. As Christians, we shouldn't be surprised by what seems like unjustified hatred. When people vehemently hate you, even though you haven't done anything wrong to them, when you've done good to them, you've been kind at work, eagerly performing all your tasks with a cheerful spirit. You've even picked up other people's slack and helped them with their work. 
you've poured your heart out for your children and other loved ones, given until it feels like you have no more to give. But when you take any kind of stand against sin or for God, there's immediate backlash. It feels like you've been spit in the face for all you've done. Friends turn into former friends. Words of gratitude for you turn into words of grumbling against you. Saints, you are not unique. Others have experienced it. See Abel, see Moses, see David, see Jesus. So even though on the surface the hatred seems unjustified, it is justified. There is a reason for it. It's because of your alignment with God and with God's Son, Jesus Christ. And as the world opposes God, it will oppose God's people. It's such a common experience that Mahalia Jackson sang about it in a song entitled The The Christian's Testimony. She said, down here, I'm talked about. I'm lied upon. I'm deceived a lot. I'm even shunned, but I'm willing, oh, so willing the cross to bear. And brothers and sisters, in Christ, we will bear his cross. And it will not feel good. We may experience something of the verbal assaults and unfair attacks that David experienced. Some of the character uh, assassinations and false charges that he endured. That the one he pointed to, Jesus Christ, endured. But when everyone seems to turn against you, be comforted that as God's people, we can always turn to God. I love that, that even as everyone is talking about him, talking against him. David doesn't feel the need to talk back to them. They keep giving all their time to speaking against me, but David says at the end of verse 4, I give myself to prayer. Oh, would that we would model that kind of behavior. More problems, more prayer. More persecutions, more prayer. Saints, does, does that mark your life? When all kinds of enemies, all kinds of threats, all kinds of temptations rise up against you, what do you do? How do you respond? Do you try to muster up all your energy to kind of give a full kind of defense to yourself? Or do you say, I'm going to take all that energy, all that zeal, all them words and give them to the Lord? If you don't, then pray. Right now, pray that God would help you to pray more. That this kind of attitude would mark you. Everyone doing everything that I feel like is against me, but I will give myself to prayer. That might not change the situation, but I bet it will change our hearts. We can always turn to God. When everyone turns against us, we should turn to God. And turn our enemies over to him. That leads us to point number two, turn God's enemies over to God for judgment. As you look at verses 6 through 20 again, we might be initially shocked at the kind of language David uses here. Again, it's it's usually presented as David invoking curses on people. But, But pay attention, pay close attention to the language throughout. It's not 
David cursing people. It's David pleading to God to curse certain people, to, to judge them. Notice that in almost every verse, there's language of petition. Uh, look at verse 6 on. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. Let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May his children be fatherless. May his children wander. Over and over, let, may, let, may, let, may. David doesn't feel slighted, experience slander, and then fly off the handle in waging a personal vendetta which as the king of a nation, he had the power and the personnel to do. But rather, he submits his desires to see his enemies judged to God. Now, why is that important? Because David's judgment can be wrong. His perception of the problem and of the degree to which it should be remedied can be off. I mean... David is still a man, a man like us, a fallen man with finite understanding and finite wisdom. But he appeals to one who is holy and perfect, who has infinite wisdom in every situation and who always judges perfectly. You see, the passions of our own flesh can rise up and easily lead us to responding to people's insults and attacks in kind a kind of tit for tat, and we would feel justified in doing so. But I think we're taught here to filter our feelings through God in prayer. We need to filter our feelings through God in prayer. Lord, this is what I want, but is this what you want? That takes a lot of humility to not assume that you've discerned the best way to handle a problem. Amen. To not take matters into your own hands, but to entrust them to God. It shows that not just with your mouth do you think that God is better and bigger than you, but with your actions you think that God knows better than you. Amen. Right? God hates sin more than you hate sin. Oh, God hates injustice more than you hate injustice. God is for you more than you're for yourself, so stop trying to figure it out for yourself. Amen. You must entrust your enemies, all your things, over to God. You must entrust him with those problems. That, that's not merely a, a commendable thing to do. That's what God has commanded us to do, Amen. to leave things to him. Amen. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Stop trying to take God's job from him. You ain't equipped for it. You're not qualified for it. God is the judgment giver. God is the revenge seeker, not us. That ain't in our pay grade. That belongs to the Lord. And so that's what, what David is pleading to God to do. Repay my enemies. And verse 6, appoint a wicked man to stand against those wicked people who speak wicked things against me. Let an accuser stand to accuse those who falsely accuse me. And again, it's important to note that these enemies aren't just enemies of David, they're enemies of God. It's not David experiencing opposition because of his personality or anything petty like that, but rather because of his position as king, as 
leader of God's people, representing God's reign over them. And these ungodly people oppose God and his purposes and his people at every turn. I mean, notice how they're described, what they do, the exact opposite of God. I'll drop down and, and look at verse 16. Unlike the Lord, who Psalm chapter 145 verse 13 says is kind in all his works, verse 16 says these people do not remember to show kindness. Unlike the Lord, who Psalm chapter 40 verse 17 says takes thought of the poor and needy. Verse 16 says, these people pursue and oppress the poor and needy. Unlike the Lord, who Psalm 34 verse 18 says, is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Here, these people seek to put the brokenhearted to death. Saints, this is what it means to be ungodly, to be an enemy of God. It's not simply what you label yourself, it's what you do. Do your actions match God's? Do they reflect his character and what he's charged in his word? And that's why Jesus asked in, in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do the things I tell you? And these people whom David describes here probably were part of the covenant community of Israel. I mean, they, they had to have been in community with David to, for him to express that he showed them love and that he did them constant good. They probably went to worship. They performed all the rituals and routines, but they had hearts and mouths set against God's king and set against God. Now look at verse 17. They loved to curse God and his anointed. So David prays, let curses come upon him. Who's the him? Probably maybe a specific leader of this group of enemies, but probably representative of the, the group itself that is against God as a whole. Again, these are God's enemies, which explains the severity of the judgment David prays would fall on them. When you read throughout this section, David praying that these people's prayers might be regarded as sins that their children would wander and beg, that a creditor seizes all that they have. These are not the petitions of a heartless, ruthless dictator. These are the prayers of a man after God's own hearts, a God who executes harsh judgment against all who oppose him and who vindicates his holiness, a God who will do what he promised to do, curse his enemies, curse his people's enemies. Remember when, when God entered into a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. Remember one of the things he promised Abraham as the covenant head of his people, reflecting his rule over the people. He promised in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Amen. That's the same promise, the same vow that is still at play with David, the covenant head of another covenant. I will bless those who bless you and my people. And I will curse those who curse you. 
and verse 17 just said, these enemies love to curse. And so David prays that God would keep his word. Curse those who curse your people. It's right that God does not answer the prayers of these wicked people's prayers. As David prayed that, that God wouldn't. Don't answer their prayers. Wicked people pray for wicked purposes. God should regard them as sin. It's right that God cut off generations of the wicked, as David prayed, so that wickedness does not continue. I mean, that's hard for us to kind of figure out and, and, and try to see, but, but, but I mean, God knows better than we do. I mean, think about David's predecessor, Saul. Uh, God told Saul one day to, to put to death Agag, the king of Israel's constant enemies, the Amalekites, and, and to put to death all his descendants. It was a commandment that Saul did not completely follow. And centuries later, what happened? One of Agag's descendants, a man named Haman, rose up again as one of God's people's enemies and sought to destroy and decimate the people of God. This prayer here then is for God to totally wipe out his enemies, to crush them so that his rule and his righteousness might reign through his king whom he's appointed. If you have any doubt that these prayers to God here for, for the judgment against people or against God's enemies and not just David's personal rivals, just, just look at verse 8. Where David prays that this enemy's days be few, that another take his office. On his own, it doesn't seem very significant until you see how the New Testament uses it, how the New Testament shows it fulfilled. In Acts chapter 1, after the disciples have just witnessed the crucified but risen Jesus ascend into heaven, they gathered in a room in Jerusalem to pray and to deliberate. And one of the things they discussed was, was how all the events they just witnessed, their beloved Jesus' false arrest and his crucifixion, guided by the hands of the betrayer Judas, how all these things had been predicted by the scriptures. The apostle Peter stands up in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, and says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand, listen to this, by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is the field of blood. Listen to this again. For it is written, when does David speak in the scriptures by the Holy Spirit about Judas, it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's a quote from Psalm 69. And let another take his office. Direct quote from Psalm 109 verse 8. This seemingly random verse in Psalm 109 verse 8, let another take his office is quoted by the Apostle Peter as having been ultimately been fulfilled as it related to the disciple Judas, who betrayed the future David, 
the future king, Jesus, his office as a disciple being replaced. I think it shows us again that David's prayer for judgment is not an act of personal vindictiveness, but is against those who oppose God. In David's day and in Jesus' day. But what about in our day? Can we pray this kind of prayer? Most of us have been taught or maybe just immediately feel, of course not. No Christian should ever pray this kind of prayer. Sometimes that, that, that response is born out of, a, out of a wrong, kind of disjointed view of Scripture, of God. The Old Testament has this kind of hard language of, of justice. But the New Testament is all about grace. The Old Testament shows a God who's always angry. The New Testament shows a God of love. But friends, the same triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit are the one who is consistently presented and consistently speaking consistently throughout all the texts of Scripture. Right? He does not change, and His Word is unchanging. A more biblical and scripture-based argument that's been presented of why Christians shouldn't pray these kind of prayers springs up from passages we read, such as the one in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says to, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, not against them, and where Jesus himself models this. I mean, on the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Jesus isn't praying against his enemies. Even on the cross, he's praying for them. It's a good argument. But then you also have to give attention to other texts. So you can't just have your favorite Bible verses and make your argument. That's a terrible way to do theology. You got to bring the entire Bible to bear on a specific topic. See how the scripture interprets scripture. And don't separate what the Lord has put together. Right? You got to account for the other passages, right? Where, where you see Jesus, the same Jesus who, who prays for his enemies, pronouncing curses and woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. Because unlike the Romans who crucified him, they should have known better. They knew what they did. Or when you, you see passages of the, the Apostle Paul, who is about as pro-grace as you can get. That same Paul nonetheless petitioning that, that those who would dare preach a different gospel other than the one of Christ crucified and resurrected, that those people would be accursed. All that to say, we, we, sh we shouldn't just discard, uh, discard praying this, this kind of prayer so easily without giving serious thought to it. I think Christians can pray psalms like this, but with great caution and with great care. So here's what not to do. Right. Your boss right. speaks to you dismissively. They give you assignment or ask a question that, that seems to question your intelligence. You should not go find a prayer closet <laughs> and pray to God to appoint a wicked man against him. Or that his children would be fatherless. That would not be a good thing to do. 
or kids, a classmate mocks you and makes fun of your outfit or your shoes, you should not pray that his mother's sins not be blotted out or that the Lord cut off his family's memory forever. That's the wrong way to do this. Why? Because this prayer is not for God to judge those who simply personally offend you. This prayer is against those who oppose God. And even then, we need to be careful. The enemies who set their hearts on evil against God and his people with seeming no intention of letting up, no intention of repenting, we can pray for God to judge them. Lord, don't let their prayers be answered. Don't let any of their plans for more evil to succeed. I mean, Nicole read for us earlier in 1 Peter chapter 3 that, that God's ears are open to the prayers of the righteous, but his face is against those who do evil. You can pray, Lord, keep your face against those who are evil. Don't listen to their prayers. We can pray that God would, would give the wicked a taste of their own medicine. Lord, appoint a wicked man to stand against them. Let an accuser accuse them. We can pray, Lord, crush those who seek to crush your people. We can pray those kind of prayers against those in the world who rage against God and his people. But we should pray those prayers in a redemptive manner. Lord, crush your enemies that they might become your people. You know, that's what God does in salvation. He turns enemies to friends, to children. If you're a Christian, you know that. You and I were once enemies to God. As, as Paul says, we hated God and hated one another. But God stepped in and crushed our opposition, crushed our rebellion, not by crushing us, but by sending his son, Jesus Christ, and crushing him in our place. These judgments that David prays here against God's enemies belong to us as God's enemies. But they fell on Jesus instead. He bore our wrath on the tree to bring us to God. He was cut off from the land of the living so that we might be grafted into the family tree of God. God judged Jesus in our place for our sins. But Jesus rose up from the grave for our justification to declare all those righteous who turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ. In that way, the wicked can be redeemed, but only as they're wrecked in Christ. And that's one way we can pray this psalm against God's enemies, that God would punish them in his son. In his excellent book on the Psalms, Christopher Ashe proposes that perhaps that's how God answered the prayers of some of the earliest Christians who, who may have prayed this psalm or one like it against Saul, or who we know as the Apostle Paul. Paul was once a fierce enemy of God, a fierce enemy against God's anointed King Jesus. Paul hated the anointed one. Acts 8 says, Paul hated the anointed one's people. He was ravaging the church. And we know from other places in Acts 
that when the church was being persecuted, that they prayed. They explicitly prayed the Psalms. Now look at Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 26 for an example. They, they, they only, not only pray to God, they pray the Psalms back to God. Well, what if they prayed Psalm 109 with Paul in mind? That God would send an accuser against him. That God would cut off his posterity, that his name be blotted out. And what if God answered this prayer in an unexpected way? Not by cursing and condemning Paul, but condemning Christ for Paul and converting him. Killing his old life. Cutting off that former name where Paul was once only known for, Lord, this man has done great harm to your church. Now we know Paul as the writer of 13 books of the New Testament as the kind of uh, exemplary missionary who takes God's word to God's people. He gave Paul a, a new life, a, a new name in Jesus. Not one synonymous with murdering Christians, but making Christ known to more and more people to become Christians and mature them in the faith. Thanks, who, who, who are some of the enemies of God then that, that you might pray for like this? Maybe it's some of the many Muslims in Afghanistan. Many threatening to kill anyone who, who dares profess to be a Christian. There's literally bounties on Christians' heads by Muslims in some of these countries like Afghanistan, that if you become a Christian, if you get baptized, you will be killed. And maybe it's the enemies of God in our own country. Not murdering Christians, but maligning us as intolerant, as bigoted, as hateful. Perhaps you need to pray that God would, by his spirit, accuse those who accuse us. Show them their many sins for which they should be judged. They love to judge. Lord, show them why they should be judged. And judge them, but in Christ. Destroy their former life of enmity and make them yours. We can pray this psalm like that. And we can also pray it in a way that if people do not turn from their sins, if they remain at enmity with God, unwilling to turn to him, that God would vindicate himself and demonstrate his holiness and his justice by ultimately crushing sinners. You see, not only salvation, but judgment brings God glory. We can pray that God's perfect righteousness and complete authority is revealed even as he destroys his enemies. Well, we don't pray that with delights. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We can pray that with a sober understanding that God's just character must be upheld and sinners must be judged, either in Christ or on their own. Sinners must be judged, but thank God, not by us. Ultimately, by God. And that's a good thing because he is a good God. And so we should turn every enemy over to him to do as he pleases, knowing that he will always do what is right. Amen. We should turn our enemies over to God for judgment 
and we should turn to him for deliverance. Point number three, turn to God for deliverance. Now, we'll spend the, the least amount of time on this point, not because it's least important, but because it's the most familiar to us. We're used to asking God to help us, to, to deliver us. And says we need not be ashamed of that. We need to keep doing that. David pleads to God in verse 21 to work on his behalf, to deliver him. And he says in verse 26, help me, save me. And he pours out the miserable condition he's in. Verse 22, I am poor and needy. Verse 24, my, my knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt or, or skinny. Verse 25, I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see my despicable condition, they, they wag their heads. Which is exactly what people did when they saw Jesus in his despicable condition on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 41 says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him. But Jesus, like David, did not talk back to his enemies who were taunting with their tongues and wagging their heads, but he gave himself to prayer. He talked to God on the cross. Deal with me for your name's sake and deliver me. Save me according to your steadfast love. Jesus prayed the Psalms on the cross. Specifically, Psalm 22, but if you keep reading Psalm 22, you see that it ends where David ends, praying not just that God has forsaken, but praying that God seems to have forsaken his son, but he will not. He will deliver him. Jesus trusted himself to his heavenly father, and his heavenly father saved him. He brought his son Jesus out of the hands of sinners. He brought his son Jesus up from the shame of the cross and death. He brought his son Jesus out of the dark tomb of death to reign forever. He let it be known, verse 27 says, that this was God's hand at work, delivering his son even from death. And saints, in Christ, we too can turn to God for deliverance from our foes, from our enemies, from our attackers, and know that we will have it. As God acts on our behalf, for his namesake, to show that he is the faithful God who keeps covenant with his people, who delivers them, who delivers us from every enemy. And so we can praise God like David does in verses 30 and 31 for being God, a God who stands ready to help the needy, verse 31 says ready to save us from those who would condemn our souls to death. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, interceding for us. So, so let the enemies of God speak as many lies and insults against us as they want. 
the Son of God speaks a better word Amen. for us. Uh, so we need not fear anyone or anything. As God's people, we can turn God's enemies over to God, trusting that they will be judged and that we will be delivered. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the Psalms that explore really every part of our lives, the ups and the downs, the, the joys and the sorrows, the friends and the enemies, and that teach us how to live in light of life's realities. Lord, we praise you that you are the greatest reality in all of life, and you have directed our eyes to look to you, to pray to you in every season. Oh, Lord, train us to trust you. Teach us to pray to you. Oh, Lord, we pray that those who are reviling against you, warring against you, even this morning in our congregation, anyone whose heart is set on sinning this afternoon or tomorrow, oh, Lord, anyone who's turned against you in rebellion, Lord, we pray that you would crush them right now. Not an ultimate judgment, Lord, but crush their sinful life and give them new life in Jesus. Oh, Lord, judge your enemies that they might be your people. And as your people, Lord, give us strength, oh, Lord, to lean upon you and to live for you even in the midst of every enemy we might meet today and throughout the rest of this week. Oh, Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Jesus name. Amen. Amen.